Today we continue our series on defying gravity. We are exploring the issue of stewardship, but I remind you again, this is not so much about money as it is about our whole lives. We saw last week how wealth has a profound impact on how we live life. Wealth has a mass. It has such an effect it can literally pull us places we don't want to go and make us do things we don't want to do. After one of the services last week, I was talking with someone who said they moved into a new home that has a pool. Owning that pool has transformed their lives. Her husband spends countless hours preparing, testing, and cleaning that pool, and they used it maybe three times all summer. That's what possessions do. They require more and more of us. They weigh us down, and it might feel at times like it's impossible to escape their effect. Yet there is hope. Last week, we looked at the rich young man who wouldn't give up his possessions to follow Jesus. Today, we look at another rich young person, this time one who was able to break free. This is the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For his son, this son of mine, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And from First Chronicles 29:12, Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I love science. I love to discover new things about plants, animals, and the world around us. But there has always been a certain draw to the stars for me. I love to look at the stars and imagine how and why things are the way they are up there. Uh, I have a fond memory of being in college and woken by my roommates to go outside at 2 in the morning. We met up with other friends to walk through the woods to a clearing. It was there that we sat for hours watching a meteor shower of white and blue, red and green streaking across the sky. For some, though, what's most interesting is not what you can see, but what you can't see in space. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to be sucked into a black hole? A black hole is a a place in space where the gravity is so strong that nothing can escape its pull, not even light. That means you can't actually see a black hole. You can only see its effect. Once something enters the pull of a black hole, it can't ever get out. Scientists describe the moment where something hits the edge of a black hole as spaghettification. I know it sounds like I just made that up, but black holes are so strong that when you hit its edge, objects look like spaghetti being eaten. They get ripped into long, straight lines and sucked inside the black hole. Being sucked into a black hole means certain death. You cannot escape its pull. You cannot get out. You will not survive. Right when an object is at the very edge of no return, there is a a bright spark as radiation, gas, and dust get sucked in. But once you are past a certain point, there is no more light, only a vast emptiness that nothing in this universe can fill. For many people in this country, the black hole is a perfect analogy for how they manage the resources given to them by God. The gravity exerted by finances in the U.S. leads us toward a belief that we alone own our possessions, that we alone decide what lifestyle we have. This sense of ownership leads us to believe we control our resources without considering others. We submit to no one else when financial gravity pulls us in. Even when that gravity is so strong, it pulls light and stars and whole planets into itself. Most people in the U.S. live like owners. If I am an owner, all that I have is mine. There's a book that came out called The Paradox of Generosity. The authors go through the data and find that even though Americans say they want to be happy, healthy, and live purposeful lives, they fail to practice, practice the acts of generosity that actually lead to happy, healthy, and purposeful lives. They say that something is getting in the way. The authors look at the data over five years. 
they surveyed thousands of people in in-depth interviews to figure out what it is that leads to these positive outcomes for some folks. How does being generous actually affect people? And here's what they found. They found 45% of Americans that they reported they gave $0 of their income to any charitable purpose. Zero, not a single dollar. They didn't put a coin in those funnels to watch it spin faster and faster until the, the coin drops in the middle to help cancer research. They turned away Girl Scouts selling cookies to support their troop. They didn't support the Elks walking up and down the streets with cans for college scholarships and to help veterans. Somehow, Salvation Army's bell ringing outside of stores didn't get at least some of their change. There's more, though. Not only did 45% give nothing, another 40% gave less than 2% of their income. That means 15% of people in this country are giving the vast majority of financial support to charitable organizations. Now, you might be thinking it's not all about money. People give their time, and time is really valuable. That's true, yes. Time is valuable. Without volunteers, churches like ours and all kinds of nonprofits couldn't do all the good that they do. Yet in that same study, 76% of people said they don't volunteer for any organization. Three out of four do nothing with their time to help others. I dare say people in this country are like a black hole when it comes to generosity. We see the same thing to be true of our young man who has a very rich father. Jesus tells the story of a father with two sons and a younger uh, and the younger of the two boys says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. Now, there's no commentary on this request. If you read the scripture as is, you might not think anything of it, but when do children get what belongs to them? He's asking for his inheritance, and you only get that after someone dies. In effect, this son is saying, Father, I wish you were dead already. He wishes him dead so that he would get the property, sell it, and get his money. And this is actually illegal for him to do this. The father still owned the land and the profits while he was still alive, but his son goes and does it anyways. There's another factor here, too. The son is very young. From the context we gather, he's only 18, but eager to be independent and on his own. But he is immature both spiritually and when it comes to finances, he gets all his things together. And then verse 13, he traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now that phrase dissolute living is a strange one. I've always been told the son probably spent his money on women and drinking too much. People probably think that because the older brother accuses him of something similar. But dissolute living just means Immoral, So it's a stand-in for him doing things that are not good. But actually, the real word there is prodigal. This is why we call it the story of the prodigal son. But we don't use that word anymore. What's a prodigal? It's not actually someone who is necessarily immoral. It's someone that is carefree and a spendthrift. He's just wasting his money on himself and has no order, no rhyme or reason to how he spends his money. That's the real sin he commits. This is also what leads to him being totally unprepared for what comes next. Verse 14, 
When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place through that country, and he began to be in need. In Judaism, this is considered a serious sin. He is squandering the resources God has given him. So because of his carelessness, his reckless living, he is considered an evil man. There are actually similar stories to this one that Jesus is telling. Those other stories end right around here when it is clear that someone has committed a serious sin and they suffer the consequences of their actions. And here are the consequences, verse 15 and 16. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. Okay, that's, that's a wrap. This immature, foolish boy wasted his father's money, is stuck in a foreign land, and will be embarrassed every day by the irony of this Jewish boy eating pig food, an animal Jews aren't even allowed to touch. That's where everyone expects the story to end. But Jesus, Jesus goes on. The boy decides to go back to his father. Most people would say this younger son didn't even repent. He was going back to his father because it was easy. It was a way to get a decent job and some food. When we hear this story, we, we should think this son is incredibly presumptuous. He is anything but humble. He even practices his speech. He will tell his father to win him over. But when he travels back, his father is running toward him. Dad is running filled with love. When he reaches him, the son confesses he is not worthy, but dad doesn't even care about the money. He just cares that his son has returned home. The father says in verse 22, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Father has rejected the son's request to be treated as a slave. By giving him these items, he is saying, I will only receive you as my son. The son didn't deserve it. Yet the father gives him a new life out of his own generosity. Imagine the effect that had on the son's life, on how it would have changed him as a person. This selfish boy was like a black hole living only for himself, completely self-absorbed. I wonder if the boy died in that distant land, and when he came back to his father, he was received with open arms, and he was made a new man. One who valued kindness over being right, and grace over wealth. I wonder if he would have become a generous person and found real joy in that over his previous wasteful dealing with money before. Just like the prodigal who had a, a financial gravity that pulled like a black hole, we can see it in our own lives. Think about how we pray to God. We pray for help in making good decisions, paying bills, health, recovering from illnesses, and healing in relationships. These are all requests to get something from God. And I get that those prayers come from a good place, from a desire to see good happen in this world. But I wonder if those prayers are 
balanced out with a, a prayer for action. That we would share with others how to encounter the living God. That we would feed the hungry and comfort those who mourn. Do you pray for courage to assist the mentally and physically impaired? That you would help make homes for the homeless, vote for just laws, and be a part of reforming and setting prisoners free. Too often, my own prayers, uh, my prayer life is filled with prayer to receive something, to get something, rather than prayers to give and serve others. The moment our lives are transformed for the good is when those who follow Christ see that our lives are not about benefiting from the kingdom of God, but about us being participants in the kingdom of God. It's about the self taking second place to the kingdom of God and being driven by that force, God's will in your life. That's also the moment that marks a transition from being generous because we have money or resources to generosity as part of our identity. We are stewards. Every cent a Christian makes at work is not his or her own money. It's God's money. We just oversee it for a little while. We've got to think in terms of what God would have us do with his money. His resources. One way a lot of Christians show they are serious about building the kingdom of God in this world is to set aside a percentage of their income for the church and for charity. People usually say the ancient model is to give 10%, but that's actually totally wrong. There were multiple tithes in Judaism, which added up to 23% of a person's income. We know the real goal is not a number. It's a commitment that shows you are giving everything to God. If you have less money at your disposal, if you are near the poverty level or struggle to put food on the table, it might only be a few dollars a week or maybe 1% of your income. If you're a millionaire, God might be saying to you, give it up. It's an idol. Give it to help others and set yourself free. Either way, tithing is a spiritual discipline that builds God's kingdom by Building kingdom servants. There's something about being generous, whether to the church or friends and family or maybe a charity that holds a special place in your life that changes our identity. It moves us from self-centered to kingdom-centered, from self-indulgent to a servant. I remind you today, you are not the owner of what you have. You are the steward, the caretaker on God's behalf. That's why generosity is so important, because it allows us to express God's heart for this world. I want to share with you the story of Miss Margaret. She's in her early 90s, and I want you to hear for yourself how important tithing is to her. So, uh, And this is the joy that she has found in that kind of generosity. So I invite you to, to take a look at the screen as we watch this. I have always tithed, and I am so glad that I did. It is one of the decisions that brought greater meaning to my life. 
My husband died when we were young. My son and daughter were children. Then one day, I was at a meeting of the ladies' auxiliary at the church, and they announced what would be done with the thank offering that was taken every November. I came home sad because I knew we couldn't do that. There just wasn't a penny left over. My son saw that I was sad and asked me what was bothering me. I told him that I wanted to be a part of the thank offering in November, but even with all the time between now and November, I wouldn't be able to help. He said that if I wanted to give to that offering, we would do it together. We put a mason jar on the kitchen table. He and his sister took odd jobs, doing farm work or pulling weeds and gardens. They didn't make much, but they would bring their pennies and nickels home and put them in the jar. The country was still recovering from the Depression. It was hard for a woman to find a job. I had to work and take care of the children. I took in sewing and would put any money we didn't need in the jar. We kept a garden and we watched our money, but I always wanted my children to see that giving was a part of life. I just took that portion out first and we lived on the rest. And it was hard, but we did it. Bit by bit, pennies turned to nickels, nickels turned to dimes, and then quarters. By the time November came around, we had a few dollars. I had the children come with me to the meeting, and together we put our offering on the table with everyone else's. I think it was one of the proudest and happiest things we ever did together. Miss Margaret shaped the life of her family through her generosity. Whether your gift fits in a mason jar or a trust fund, you can do the same. But to have that joy, you've got to be generous like she was. Don't be like the prodigal son. Don't let financial gravity be so strong you act like a black hole, sucking in everything around you, being self-absorbed and self-indulgent. Be like the father, loving, graceful, Generous even when other family members don't like it. Moving from receiving God's, uh, uh, receiving God to participating in the kingdom. We'll talk more about the steps to get there uh, next week, but as John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, get all you can without hurting your soul, your body, or your neighbor. Save all you can, cutting off every needless expense. Give all you can. Be glad to give and ready to distribute, laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that you may attain eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen.